to Politically Correct on River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley. Here with you for the next hour for chat and great music. As the honeybee killer hit the Asian hornet invades our towns, find out what you can do to help repel this alien. Also, it's Black History Month and find out what's on and where and when in the region. But first, how do you deal with the death of your unborn child? How do you manage and move on and always keep them in your heart? We're talking to Maduri Betty, a counsellor who we've had on in, in the past, who's going to be talking about an event and her own personal experience. Here's Maduri. going to introduce a long-time friend of Politically Correct Councillor Maduri Betty, independent councillor from Foxborough in Slough. Maduri, thank you for coming on the show and you're talk- going to talk to us about the Vishal Foundation and your experience. Where did this all start? Um, so the Vishal Foundation started in 2012 and it started because of my personal experience with loss and especially with uh, baby loss. So My journey is a long one. I conceived in 2003 after years of trying unsuccessfully with IVF and IUI and many, many evasive treatments that really take its toll on your body, mentally, physically, it takes its toll. And then I just had enough, we gave up and then we conceived naturally. And wisdom, honestly, uh, anyone, and there'll be so many women and men who can relate to this, what I'm saying. We did I, no less than 10, 10, 12 pregnancy tests. And one day my husband went out and then I sent him out again because I just couldn't believe that I, I had conceived naturally. So every day was a blessing. And as the months grew, every kick was just a joy. And it was the happiest period of my life. You know, I had this baby long for baby growing within me and it just felt like just you know they say nirvana it felt it just was amazing and yeah. at 29 weeks and four days that happiness just came shattering down I went to work and it was only at the end of the day because it was such a busy day I thought you know I haven't felt any I haven't felt my baby kick and I came home and my hands my hands were feeling really strange they were feeling very numb and my husband said let's just go to the hospital let's just see if everything's okay and we went and after waiting some time we had a test and they told me that my cervix was one centimeter dilated and that my baby would come early but 30 weeks not a problem they showed us the special care unit and they gave me steroids for the baby's lungs you know and they said it will come early and we'll measure your cervix tomorrow and see what happens and I felt in very safe hands but the next day everything went wrong I didn't there was no space to scan me it was very very busy and what was happening my cervix was dilating and I it was two centimeters three centimeters we'll never know but I kept going back to the scanning unit and saying can you scan me scan you can you scan me And then when I went back at about quarter to five, it had closed. So they didn't scan me internally. They just had done it from on top. Yeah. Had I been scanned internally, they would have known I was dilating and they would have gone into action. 
but instead I was sent home. So at night, throughout the night, I dilated. And in the morning, my husband went to work at six and at about 6.30, I felt this tremendous and horrendous pain, which I didn't realize that I had gone into labor. But yeah. my son, uh, I was having a baby boy. I um, was a carrier of strep B, which again, I didn't know. So he caught strep B. So my dilation was, or my labor going into labor was silent. It's called silent. So I didn't feel anything until he was trying to come out. So I didn't, you know, go through all those labor pains or anything. So, you know, it's a first child and you don't know, and you've been sent home by the hospital and you don't want to create a fuss. You know, everyone's yeah. been worried. You don't want to. So I just thought <laughs> that I, I was on strong iron tablets. I thought I was constipated. And yeah. I kept on going to the loo and thinking, what is going on here? What is going on? My son was breech. Had he not been breech, he would have come out at home. Yes. So I phoned my sister who had given birth just two or three weeks before. And she said, get yourself to a hospital. This doesn't sound good. Phoned the hospital and they said, get your husband to bring you in. Had to phone him. He had to come from work. And with some that journey to hospital, I'll never forget that. It was horrendous. My screams and... I think we nearly had so many crashes on the way. It was just horrendous. But mm. ultimately, as soon as I got to hospital, I had to have an emergency cesarean. Yes. Uh, I nearly lost my life. I'd lost a lot of blood. And it at that point didn't matter because we had our baby boy and we were celebrating that point you know every all the trauma that we'd just been through it was it was okay you know I couldn't see him because they were giving me blood and all but my husband brought a photo and he was all wide up he was in scubu he was all wide up but he was our baby and it was going to be okay until the next until the evening they came back and said that he's not responding and they think that he's there's an issue and it's impacted on his brain and wow. they're doing scans and if he lasts through the night, then, you know, it might be okay. And that was the longest night of our lives. That was just, you know, it, I kept waking up and it was one o'clock, it was two o'clock. And I was thinking, why isn't it seven o'clock? Why isn't it? I just needed to know. But they came back at about 10 and they said it didn't look good. And the kindest thing we could have done is to switch off his life machine support machine and I at that point I hadn't even seen my son and yeah. uh, I guess you I hadn't even held him hadn't held him I didn't want to do it and I thought I'm not doing that until they said to me that he's surviving on morphine it's the morphine that's keeping him going and I thought how is that possible that a baby of one day old not even 24 hours can be surviving on morphine and that word is what made me say, no, I have to let him go. I yeah. have to. So they took me off all the tubes that I was on. And I was, my husband wheeled me to the scaboon in it. And that's where I first saw him. But the first time I held him and the first time my husband held him is when he was put in our arms and we had to turn off his life support machine. Right. And, you know, wisdom in that moment, as a parent, you try and breathe life into your child. You try. Yeah. And in that moment, when you're about to switch off 
this life that's dearer to you than your own life, you try and give that child a love of a lifetime and you try and whisper in its ear, you know, I love you, I love you, and hope that travels through in the journey, you know, and you try and teach them all you would teach in a lifetime and you're grabbing onto that moment and then you have to switch that machine off, you know. Yeah. And we were we were really fortunate that both my husband and I are very, very large families and we called everyone. Everyone came and they all held him. The doctor said he'll pass now. He'll pass very quickly. But he held on. He held on for another four or five hours and they kept coming in and just checking because they have to do the time of death. Even with a baby, they have to do that. And they kept saying, yeah, he's still with us. He's still with us. I don't know whose arms he eventually passed away because, you know, our friends came, our families came, but he passed away in love, you know. And at that time, you're kind of in autopilot. You're organizing the funeral and all of these things and your family are around you. And it's lovely. But what I realized is, with baby loss, it's very different. And I had comments such as, it's okay, because you'll have another one. And it's okay, because at least there was no life to speak of, you know, at least they didn't, you don't have the memories, you know, and that that must have been quite painful. Very painful, very painful. And, you know, an aunt who I love dearly, said to me, what you do in your life's life, you reap in this life I didn't know if she meant that about me or my son because we're yeah. in twelve, we're one but it hurt me immensely and then as people you know in any loss people go back to work and you have to get on with it but with our loss we were expected to to carry on even though I had milk flowing you know it hadn't dried up yeah but we were expected to carry on and even though I had a room full of stuff as you do you know, for your baby. And I had this cesarean scar. I didn't have my baby in my arms, but he was very much alive in my heart. But we had to carry on. And I remember when I went back to work, the first day I went back to work, it wasn't very well thought out. A girl that was pregnant with me brought her child in. And it was those moments that were just horrific, just horrific. And you have to go and say, congratulations because you that's what you do you know you get through the door the baby packs that you order with such love you know when you're pregnant but when you lose that child it turns into a nightmare it's a living nightmare every reminder like I mean me I took out the I remember it was from Tesco's and I took it out and I put it on my windscreen because I didn't want to admit to myself that there was no baby yes so mentally for your well-being it's just astounding how much it changes you as a person and my son's first birthday was on Diwali and I thought so Diwali is a an Indian festival it's the biggest Hindu festival it's like Christmas and we celebrate with lights and fireworks and I thought had he been here we would have been having the most amazing party for him his first birthday on that auspicious day but he wasn't. And I had to just be quiet. There was nothing I could do. 
So over time, I just learned that I wanted to not learn. I had this feeling that I need to acknowledge my son. I need to acknowledge because through him, although he came and he went, I am a different person and he's shaped me into something. He's given me a wisdom beyond my years. And I wanted to remember him and I wanted to thank him for being in my life for however long and just allowing me to feel that love. Because when you conceive, you love that child from day dot, from day yeah, there one. Is, there, there is something quite special about the, the love of a parent for a child. It's uh, <laughs> not just unconditional, but you literally fall in love and you would kill for them. You would die for them. You would, you would. And I just wanted that acknowledged. So it's just through speaking to my sister. She said to me, why don't you do something? Why don't you do a balloon release? Why don't you do something? So one day I just picked up the phone to Sergeant's funeral directors who my son had been buried through them. And they were amazing. And I said, you know, I'd like to do something. And that's how the journey started. And we started the Bashar Foundation. And first it was in the cemetery, actually, where we'd have a service in the chapel parents two parents would speak and about their journey of loss and we would release doves and we'd release balloons with personal messages but over time we realized the balloons wasn't the right thing to do so we you know because of the environment so we changed that so it's kind of shaped over the last 2012 was the first year we did this so we have Uh, a summer event and a winter event and slowly people got to know about it but you know miscarriage I guess is such a thing that people again don't people miscarry and they think oh yeah okay you know she's going to get on with it he's not going he's going to get on with it but it's it's your child and I feel for women who miscarry parents because there's no acknowledgement I held my baby but, you know, and I hate the word miscarriage. I hate that. You know, it's a horrible word. So I, I have to I have to confess on that, that in, in my first marriage, my, my wife did miscarry. And as a man, I did not comprehend the pain and the suffering she went through. So mm-hmm. I, I should have been more sensitive, but I, I wasn't. So it's something that for guys, just be aware. Yeah. And then there's some guys, some men that actually the man has to always show or feels, especially in our culture, I don't know if it's the same uh, with yours, but they have to be the strong one. They have to be the one that holds it together. And men generally internalize and women externalize. So when you think of baby loss, you think about the mother and not so much the father. And that's hard as well, because the father is an equal part of this. Yes, a mother carries the child, but my husband, he used to listen, you know, for, he fell in love with that child and he'd put his hand on my stomach every day and he'd formed a bond with my son through that you know so it's very very difficult you know but what we you know like I was saying about miscarriage this one woman who attends our event she's a mother five times over wisdom five times over she has lost she's miscarried and she's 
Yeah, and she says that five times over, I should be a mother, but this is the only relationship in which you lose that title. And it's the most beautiful title. It's You're the right. most beautiful word. Yeah. But just think of that. You don't lose it as a widow or an orphan. You have these labels, but in child loss, you, you lose it. Or as any parent of any age, you lose that. And how sad is that, you know? So through these events, we realized what happened is people who had lost their children at an older age, they started attending. And it wasn't suddenly just about babies. And we didn't want to say, no, you can't, you can't attend. Because, you know, when my my mother-in-law passed away, she was 98 and her son was 53, my husband. But for her, he was her baby and he would always be her baby. So we thought, no, this is open for anyone who has lost a child. And when you lose a child, there's not just a relationship to a parent, there's the siblings, there's the grandparents, there's the uncles and aunties. Everyone who's so happy that you've conceived also have to deal with that loss. So our events are open to anybody who has been touched by that loss. So tell us about your events. What events have you got coming up and what sort of things happen? Okay, so we, our summer event is called Little Angels and it's always in the summer. It's always at Herschel Park and it's beautiful. Two parents come, they speak, there's poems, there's a choir, a Cation's choir, and it's out in the open and we release doves and we always have some form of a memorial we write on stones or we write on a wall with all, all the messages for the, for the babies and the children um, and now like I say adults as well whatever your personal message is the winter one wave of light is very different and so this week is baby loss awareness week I don't know if you know but the culmination of that week is on Friday so Friday is something throughout the world it, it's called wave of light And at seven o'clock, you're asked to light a candle in memory of your lost love baby, of your lost child. So if you think of all the different time zones in the world, if everyone is lighting a candle at seven, it's a ripple. It's a wave of light across the universe. And that's a really lovely, I think that's beautiful. It's not actually that well known. Not many people have heard of it, but we've been celebrating. This is our seventh annual wave of light so again it's in Herschel Park and what we do is we provide lanterns and we provide pens and you write on the lantern you write personal message whatever it be your child's name or just a heart or whatever you want and so we provide the lanterns and within the lantern goes a little candle and then you walk over to the lake and you place gently the candle or the lantern on the lake and again we have a choir we have a lovely uh, sing for you it's called they have a we have a choir and the whole area is lit up and it just looks beautiful and everybody there has the path may have been different but the end result is the loss of their child or their sorry so how can people participate do they need to call you or do they just turn up at Herschel Park at 6 30 we we provide everything they just need to turn up we have teas and coffees there as well because everyone nobody wants to leave you're suddenly in a place where everyone understands and so we provide teas and coffees and 
although the immersion is at, uh, placing the candle is at seven, we do say come early, come 6.30, so you have time to think about what you want to write and write on there. And the, the mayor attends as well. And it's just a really lovely, lovely event. Maduria, we're going to play a song now. It's uh, Eva Cassidy and Songbird. Tell us about the song. I love this song and actually both the choirs for the summer and winter services always play Songbird. The words, I don't know if you if you know it, Wisdom, but it's for you, there'll be no more crying, for you the sun will be shining and I feel that when I'm with you it's all right, I know it's all right. So your child, when you lose your child, you're always, they, you carry them in your arms, you carry them in your heart, so they're always with you. So the lyrics of this song have always really touched me. And that's why I, you know, this is my go-to song for, for Vishal. After I lost Vishal, I actually lost uh, another baby as well to a late miscarriage. Uh, it was five years to the day of losing my son. But because life is the way and people say, oh, another one, you know, like I was telling you about the stigma and taboo. Sadly, I don't even really speak about that child, but for both of them, this song is very, very close to my heart. Maduri, thank you very much. For all you parents and listeners out there, here's Eva Cassidy with Songbird. Enjoy.
Welcome back to uh, Politically Collect, here to entertain, inform and empower people on River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley. Remember, you can listen to River Radio online on your mobile, Apple, Google, Web or Alexa or Dab. That was Eva Cassidy with Songbird, a favourite song of Councillor Maduri Betty from the Vishal Foundation. Now, Maduri was talking us about a, an event that she and a foundation that she's created, which helps grieving parents know uh, how to deal with issues. So there is an event coming up at Herschel Park this Friday from 6.30pm in Slough. So back to Maduri. Okay. Now, are there any other support mechanisms or other things that you, you do for parents, for families, for people who have suffered loss as the Vishal yeah. Foundation? We do the events and we signpost. So we signpost to organisations such as SANS who have... Who are SANS? SANS is the biggest baby loss uh, bereavement organisation in England. It's like there's Tommies, there's SANS. So we signpost to them because they have all the right tools. But I myself speak to a lot of parents. I support them through their journey. And I'm happy to speak to anyone should they want to speak to me or to you know, sit in silence, because sometimes that's all you want. You know, if anyone wants to speak to me, I'm here. Okay. How can people get in contact with you to find out more, either to help or for support themselves? You can go to the Vishal Foundation. There's a Facebook page and there's a website. How do you spell that? V-I-S-H-A-A-L Foundation. Or I'm happy to, if it's okay with you, give my number and people can just contact. It's 07-980-493-314. So if you send me a WhatsApp message, I can send you the leaflet and just, you know, speak to you, share with you more details should you wish to. And I hope you can attend, Wisdom. It'd be lovely to have you there. I will be there, yeah. Thank oh, you for sharing it. your story. That that's uh, you. it, it, it's great you. to see that people are being helped and uh, you're supporting. You're putting your arms around parents around the UK. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you go. That was a bit of um, John Burko with order, order, order. And of course, we were listening to uh, Madhuri Bedi about the Vish from the Vishal Foundation about an event for parents and not just parents, but anyone who has suffered a loss with an unborn child. Now, we're going to change the subject slightly now. It's Black History Month, and we're going to be talking to Catherine Ross. Who, Catherine is the founder of the national, of the director of the of the Museum and National Caribbean Heritage Museum, the first museum in the UK to celebrate Caribbean culture, culture and social history. Catherine is also the editor of Black History Month 365, a nationwide print and online magazine, which is the central focal point of black history information. So she emigrated to the UK from the Caribbean island of St. Kitts in 1958, aged just seven years old. Don't do the maths, guys. So, um, Catherine, welcome to the show. Hello. Glad to be with you. Oh, it's fantastic. Great. Um, black history... Oh, but before we... Get going. Go on, go on. I have to say what I say to everybody I meet. Happy Black History Month. Absolutely. I wish you to. Is there a special greeting other than Happy Black History Month? Do we have to do like a dab as they do in American football or something like that? 
Um, no, you don't have to, but it sounds <laughs> okay. good. I may start adding right. that to mine. <laughs> Fabulous. So, Gavin, thank you very much for joining us. Tell us about Black History Month. Well, Black History Month is an opportunity for black people who generally do not get good press for most of the year. And then there's a quick flurry in September as people start thinking, what are we going to do for Black History Month? And uh, then they try and and celebrate um, all the achievements of black people. But the thing is, you can't celebrate 12 months of achievement in one month. So what we're saying, we're black all year round, we're black for 12 months, so let's celebrate black culture all the time. So um, it started out as, as a week, then it became a month, and what we are pushing for is it will become a season at least. You know, we have to go slowly with these things. So hopefully it will become black history season. So what sort of... Just, talking about all the great things that people have done. We're not all criminals, how dare they? And we're not all shirkers, how dare they? Lots of us are doing great and wonderful things from right up in government to right down to your neighbour who's doing things slowly, casually, but actually making a difference. So why is Black History Month so important? Well, it gives us this opportunity to counter the records, put the records straight, and it gives us a chance to celebrate. Now, it's not a stereotype, but black people know how to party and have fun. (laughs) And so for a whole month, we have the opportunity to sing and dance and do all the things that we like that we call having fun. And part of that is meeting up with people. We all have busy lives and we're rushing around all the time. But this month, we start do um, some things that are traditionally Caribbean, have the food, as I say, have the dance, play the dominoes, and or go to church and just meet up and be able to talk in your own lingo. So Patois is the number one language at the time. And um, we just do things that make us feel good about ourselves. And is it just black people feeling good about themselves or should we not all be doing this together? Right. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's what it started out as. But we are saying in our title, uh, Black History Month is for black and brown people. There are so many brown people now because we've been in England for how long? Um, 74 years. And so, you know, there is that other group. And we have to be mindful that um, some of them like to be called brown as opposed to black um, as a way of recognising other aspects of their heritage. And so it's for black and brown people. I think in the main, and I'm going to stick with that, However, anybody who links with black and brown people, it's also an opportunity for them to celebrate. People want to know more about our culture and we're happy to tell people. We want them to see that if they do the things that um, we do, they'll have fun. They'll feel part of a community that cares for each other and is there for each other. Um, So for 11 months, if we're focusing on other cultures, white British culture, this is a chance for them to come and experience ours. Hopefully that will break down some of the barriers um, that currently exist. So how do you bring a level of integration through these events? Because um, obviously I I ask that because um, British culture now is no longer white British. It cannot be that just white British. It's it's an amalgamation of things which have enriched a culture. In fact, it's always been that way. If you look at the Germans coming over hundreds of years ago to the Normans coming over. So our culture is, evol- is, is evolving all the time. So how does this embrace this e- e- evolution of this communal new culture? Well, I, well, 
people like yourself, if you say that often on your radio station, people will hear it often and understand it and then look around them and they'll see evidence of what you've just said. It's because people still try and state that it's white English culture that should be the dominant culture, that should be the one that we all um, turn to. Wow, did um, people who think like that face problems in the 40s, 50s and 60s? They told us all we should assimilate, we should integrate, we should give up all that was ours, that was good, that we're proud of, and become English. Now, that would have been okay if, because a lot of people did try hard, they gave up their culture in order to be accepted. So, and we found out it didn't work. So long as our beautiful melanin skin is there, even if it is only the one drop there and it's noticeable, people will always see us as different. So blow it, just be yourself. And that is the theme of Black History of the Month this year. What are you proud to be and proud to be is being um, recognising and living your Caribbean culture or African culture. So what range of events are there going to be happening uh, and where? Is it just in, in Reading? Is it going to be in Slough, Wokingham, uh, London? Where, where do we go to to participate? All over the country, there's lots and lots happening. In the early days, there used to be one or two events in each city and so on. But now there are so many. And that's what I'm saying to you. All over the country, it's spilling out of um, October. Some people start, well, certainly um, our museum start Black History Month work in September as soon as schools goes back. And we keep going personally until mid-November. So there's a lot. I mean, and it's not just dancing and singing and sport. We do a whole heap of other things. And that's what we, we try to show people, the range of things that we can do. So there are lots of classical concerts. There are lots of family picnics. There are lots of um, church services or ways of bringing back spiritual faith. There are um, lots of things about aspects of our culture that um, we, we don't do or many people don't know about. So there's a lot to discover. Okay. I'm just reading through some of the lists on, on your site. So at Reading, we've got Norman Jay, MBE and Don Letts. Tell me more about them. They're, they are world-famous musicians? Well, they are, but as I say, each county um, does their own thing. So there's no, no one way... Um, of celebrating and I'm not familiar with um, your area in what they're doing Um, what we do is just collect all the listings and put them in and we're very pleased that the listings look um, you know very full so where can people go to for more information more information keep reading and black history month magazine because that's updated at least three times a week um, with different stories um, of people being proud to be um, whatever they want to be, whether that's black, brown, Caribbean, black, British, or whatever. Um, lots of really heartwarming stories and also um, stories that give you encouragement that tell you you're not alone. Um, other people elsewhere are facing some of the issues that, that you are, but a lot have got through them and you can too. All right. So how do we get to that uh, magazine? What's the website details? Um, it's blackhistorymonthuk.org um, or you can come to um, museumand.org and you'll find lots to fill your Black History Month. Okay, fantastic. Catherine Ross, thank you so much for 
joining us. And of course, we've got a song um, which you've asked for, which is to be young, gifted and black. But this version is by Bob Andy and Marcia Griffiths. I hope you all enjoy it. Thank you for joining My us. My favourite. Thank you. Well right. done. <laughs> young, gifted and black. Young, Gifted and Black, one of Catherine Ross's favourite songs. Well, welcome back to Politically Correct on River Radio. We're here to entertain, inform and empower people. And of course, River Radio is the voice of the Thames Valley. If you've just come back, where have you been? You've missed Councillor Maduri Betty talking about help for grieving parents. Catherine Ross talking about Black History Month. If you want to listen again, you can go to uh, listen again at river.radio or you can download our podcast from Apple, Spotify, Google and Deezer. But now, we're not going to have more music. We're going to be joined now by uh, Manak Dubesh, who is the 
Asian Hornet team coordinator Brian and Lewis Beekeepers. Now, the Asian Hornet is a big issue because it's just been found in the Ascot area, in this area in the Thames Valley. And of course, as speaking as a beekeeper as well, it terrifies me. But we're going to find out more about the Asian Hornet and what you can do. So, uh, Manik, um, welcome to the show. Sam, thanks so much. And I'm, I'm sorry to have to be on, a, on, a, on a, an item that, you know, in a way puts me as a bit of a Cassandra-like character after that inspiring item you've just, uh, you've just run. Okay. Well, let me introduce you, Manik. Manik, you're a journalist and an editor in the technology field, but now you retire. You've been a beekeeper for six years, same as me, and you have three hives up on the Sussex Downs near Brighton, as well as writing a regular column in the Association's monthly newsletter. You know, you are actually the Asian Hornet team coordinator. Why do you have that special title? Is it that serious? Uh- uh, it was when the um, when the Asian Hornet first appeared in in I think it was in the Channel Islands. Um, well, it actually first appeared. Let me let me let me backtrack a sec. It first sort of turned up in this area in Europe in two thousand and four. It came over from from China, I think it was, um, and unfortunately it wasn't spotted soon enough, and it spread throughout France, and now it's become uh, a problem in in Italy. And it's become a problem. Uh, sorry, in uh, Portugal, and it's become a problem in Spain as well as France. And then it spread to the Channel Islands. And so the British Beekeeper Association set up a network of people around around the country. And there's a range of beekeeping associations within the B- British Beekeeping Association, the BBKA. Um, each one of which set up a, an Asian Hornet coordinator, so that we can help to um, inform the public and we can help to uh, basically stem the tide, as it were. Um, we've had not much to do, to be frank, for about the last five years, but it looks like we might get busy. So tell me more about the Asian Hornet. We know where it's come from and we, we can see that it, it's travelled over a period of time. So it's two questions. What is an Asian Hornet and how has it travelled? How does this work? Because um, if it was from Asia, what's making it come across to the UK now? Well, as with so many non-native invasive species, we brought it. It came over on an aeroplane, probably in a container somewhere. Uh, one of the queens, because they, they hibernate over winter, um, hornets and wasps do, and a queen must have come over and basically got released into France. And as I said, she wasn't spotted, and her, the nest that she produced wasn't spotted for, for, I think, about two or three years, by which time it was too late to eradicate the Asian hornet in France, which is where it actually landed from from China. Um and since when it's just been a case of trying to sort of um, um, you know, reduce the population, I suppose, or at least limit its spread, at which, frankly, we haven't been very successful. That, that's rather worrying, because if it came over, how long has it been taken? Is it taken to get from France across to the UK? Um, well, it, it's, uh, it, it landed in France in 2004 and then gradually spread okay. northwards. We kind of hoped that the colder weather would discourage it from going this far north because it's a native of warmer climes. Um, but it did get as far as the Channel Islands, and certainly there's been an ongoing fight there over the last three or four years to try and eradicate it. And all they've, I think, managed to do so far is to catch up. They found a lot of nests, up to about 50 nests this year, um, but they haven't been able to eliminate it entirely. It was blown over from the mainland, from France to the Channel Islands, particularly Jersey. And now it's basically been brought over here. I th- and I think our predictions were, and certainly most people who know what they're talking about, um, seem to assume that with the increase in travel once the pandemic is you know, 
semi kept under control, as it were, with increased travel, there will be an increased chance of uh, Asian Hornet queens being transported across the channel um, by human beings. And as ever, we bring non-native species with us sometimes deliberately, sometimes not. Now, what's the risk of the Asian Hornet? Is there a risk for humans? Um, actually, Asian hornets are no more aggressive than, than European hornets, which are native to this country. Um, the real problem is, uh, I mean, there are, two, there are two issues, really. I mean, first of all, if you encounter a nest, step away, because they can become very aggressive in defense of their nests, and as, as can an awful lot of insects, to be fair, I mean, including bees, if you disturb them. Um, but the, 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 main, the main problem is to, is to honeybees in particular, because they see, uh, Asian hornets see honeybees as prey. And they have, they've adopted, they have a particular method of attacking honeybees on their way into the hive, loaded with, with, with goodies, you know, with, with nectar and pollen and so on. And they grab them on their way in and they dismember them and take the juicy bits, which as far as they're concerned are the, uh, the, the, the thorax which is the, the muscular bit in the middle of the insect okay. to feed to their larvae they take it back to their nests and they're very successful at doing that with honeybees because our native honeybees have no defense against that i mean they, they know that they've evolved side by side with the european hornet so they know how to deal with the european hornet which has a different modus operandi but they can't deal with the asian hornet and so if a bunch of asian hornets gang up on a beehive they can decimate it, cause immense damage to it. So what is the longer-term risk then? Suppose they, they destroy, what, what, are you expecting half the bee population to fall away? Honeybees? Um, well, I'm, is that I'm, a fear? I, is that I a worst-case scenario? Sorry? Is that a worst-case scenario? Um, well, it hasn't happened in France. last number I saw in France was, um, yeah, where it's obviously it's much, much more widespread, is that something like, um, 80% of beehives have been attacked, but not necessarily eradicated. Um, but it is, it is, it's pretty, yeah, it, it can be pretty dangerous as far as honeybees are concerned. I mean, so beekeepers are concerned about this, obviously, as you're, yourself a beekeeper, you'll know that. Um, but it's also the case that um, I don't think that there's a wider issue there in general um, that's just my personal opinion, because bees are only one of many pollinators. Um, and also, we're quite well prepared now, I think, in this country, um, certainly from an institutional perspective. There's the non-native species unit, the, the, and there's the bee, National Bee Unit, both of which are coordinating to help um, develop strategies to um, limit the spread of, 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 the, of the hornet. So what does a hornet actually look like, an Asian hornet, compared to a, a honeybee or a bumblebee? So how would people recognise it if they saw it? It's a good question. Um, it's actually quite distinctive. Its full name is, the scientific name is Vespa velutina nigrithorax. And what that tells you is it's, it's mostly black. Um, the word nigri is obviously a Latin of, of, of black. And um, it's got an orange stripe on the fourth segment of its abdomen sort of going back from the front so it's basically mostly black with a, a, a an orange stripe on it it's got yellow legs and it's got an orange face and those three things are quite distinctive none of the no other uh, native uh, hornet or bee or whatever looks like that at all it's so if you see something's mostly black with an orange stripe towards the tail um 
be aware that it could be an Asian hornet, or it may not. There are there are sort of there are plenty of insects that mimic hornets, like uh, hoverflies in particular. Um, but if I can offer a bit of advice to people, there is an app that people can download onto their phones, which is uh, is basically just called Asian Hornet app, I think, um, on onto Android or iPhone, and this will help with identification and also reporting to the National Bee Unit, which is the place to go if you happen to, to, to encounter something you think may be an Asian hornet. So, so this is the, uh, an app which is produced by, um, is it DEFRA and the Bio- Biological Records Centre, is that right? Correct, yes. Okay, so where do people, what's it called again, what, the, the app it's for called, Android or, or Apple? Uh, the app, yeah, it's just called Asian Hornet. Type Asian Hornet into your um, Apple Play or Google Play um, um, search facility and it'll find it. Okay. And of course, people can actually go online as well. If they go to the Biological Records Centre and, and type in non-native species alert and uh, Asian hornet, then you can actually fill in a, a form online uh, rather than using an app if you haven't got uh, a smartphone and, and actually keep upload photographs as well as um, telling people, telling the DEFRA where exactly these you think the location of a nest could be. And then what will happen next once um, this has been reported? Uh, basically, DEFRA will—they've got—they've got a team sort of dedicated to this this sort of activity, and they'll go out and find the hornet, uh, find the tr- and, and track down the nest. There's a very particular way they have of doing this, and uh, the public shouldn't get involved in this because basically, as I say, Asian hornets en masse near the nest can be can be dangerous. But to be fair, they're no more aggressive, no more dangerous than the average. Um, hornet that we find um, that's been around in this country for thousands of years. Now, you're, um, you're just beguiling so, us so now, aren't you? It, it's, uh, it's also a bit smaller than the average European hornet, but um, yeah, on, on their own, they're not dangerous. Right. I'm sorry, I'm a wuss, mate. Uh, when it comes to <laughs> bee stings, I mean, bee stings are bad enough, and bees are what? Uh, one centimetre, two centimetre? Not even two centimetre, one centimetre? How, yeah, yeah. how big is an Asian hornet compared to a bee? Uh, it's probably about half as big again. All right, so a bigger a bigger sting, more venom. But is it more painful? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't want to be on the end of one of those things for wow. sure. Okay, and as you say, if you um, disturb a nest, they might um, attack you on mass, not what yes. you really want at all. You wouldn't want that at all, and it, it actually can be dangerous. And obviously, even if you're not allergic, um, it can be dangerous. Yes. All right. So, what happens if somebody finds one on their on their ground? Do they have to pay for this themselves? To get rid of the them? The best thing you can do is, first of all, photograph it if you can, because that's that's evidence of where it is and what it looks like. Um, I mean, as, as the Asian Hornet coordinator, team coordinator for Brighton Lewis Beekeepers, I've had a number of phone calls and emails from people uh, asking if uh, this insect or that insect is an Asian Hornet. And I'm glad to say that none of them have so far been been Asian Hornets, but, uh, you know, they've been um, bee- Hornet mimicking or bee mimicking hoverflies. There have been wasps. There have been European Hornets. Um, even bumblebees, um, but wasps, wasps and hornets are quite distinctive, aren't they? They've got this narrow waist um, and, and these kind of folded over wings. And as I say, the Asian hornet itself is, is even more distinctive because of its orange stripe and its yellow legs and orange face. Okay. Now, what's going to happen to the bee population if we start to see it? You know, we know, we know that bee populations, honey bee populations, are under considerable pressure from a number of different factors, including diseases. Um, we've got the, the issue of um, uh, 
I suppose the climate change and the flowers and the pollinations changing with um, neonicotinoids and other sorts of forms of um, of uh, fer- not fertilizers, sort of um, pesticides. Yeah. Pesticides. There's huge pressures on on bees. Uh, what what is likely to happen if if um, the you know the Asian hornet becomes established? Is this going to have an effect on agriculture at all in any way, shape, or form? Um, well. Bear in mind that bees, honeybees, are only one of, of about 247 native uh, bees within this country. There's all sorts of, there's hundreds of other types of bees out there. And honeybees are cultivated, they're kept by beekeepers. Um, and with the best one in the world, I, I don't think, and again, this is my personal opinion, I don't think that the, that the, the Asian hornet, no matter how irritating and uh, devastating it can be to to individual hives. I don't think it's probably going to make major inroads into the number of honeybees, because it hasn't done so in France, as far as I understand it. Um, but the other the other issues that you mentioned, I, I think quite rightly, like pesticides and climate change, and and also um, agricultural land, which is mostly, as far as bees are concerned, and other pollinators are, are deserts because they're monocultures. Um, they're, they're likely to suffer far more. Um, so the best thing people can do if you want to encourage uh, pollinators, and I know I'm kind of getting off topic here, but, you know, um, bear with me, um, is, is to actually plant flowers uh, and, and other bee-friendly plants rather than keep honeybees. And that sounds a strange thing for a beekeeper to say, but actually it's the other pollinators that are struggling rather than honeybees. Okay. And I'm going to put you on the spot here. Do you know where people can go to to find out more information about good plants and good flowers? And not just good flowers and plants, but also an all-year-round supply of, of nectar and pollen for, for bees. How can they help with that process of developing habitat? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, and, <laughs> go, I, and I'm on the spot, and I don't know. All I can't right, give I, the definitive answer. But what I would say, I, I, I find Google or other search engines are, 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 my, are my friends. Okay, and of course there is the British Beekeepers Association. That's the answer. That's the <laughs> I was answer. waiting yes, for. for that. <laughs> no problem at all. So, how can people contact you, Manak, if they want more information? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of dedicated to the Brighton, Brighton and Lewis area. So, if you are from that area, and, and certainly the, the, uh, the, the River Radio area will have its own beekeeper associations with their own Asian Hornet people. Um, but if you're in the Brighton and Lewis area and you happen to be listening, um, the place to get hold of me is either on by email or I've got a, a dedicated phone line. Um, and I can give you those now, if you like. Oh, yes, please. Yes. Okay. So the email is blbka, as in Brighton and Lewis Beekeepers Association, blbka.ahat, A-H-A-T, at gmail.com. So blbka.ahat at gmail.com. And the phone number is zero double seven six two three one two five nine two. Manic, thank you very much for joining us, and hopefully, I'll see you at the National Honey Show in a week or so's time. I hope so. Thanks, right. for, thanks for uh, thanks for putting me on. Brilliant. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. That was Manic Dubesh from the Lewis Beekeepers Association. Uh, of course, if you're in the local area, if you live in Slough, Windsor, Maidenhead, there is also the Slough, Windsor, and Maidenhead Beekeepers Society, which is a uh, https colon slash slash s w m b k s dot weebly w e e b l y dot com now i'm going to play a special song now it, it's kind of like for manic and also for myself but it, it, it you know it's, it's a bit of reggae as well so here's honeybee by albert king sail on my little honeybee sail on 
Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm going to replay that one just again. Albert got ahead of himself. So here is The Honeybee by Albert King. Another show, and that was um, that was Albert Martin, Albert King with Honeybee. So you've been listening to Politically Cracked on River Radio, here to entertain, inform, and empower people. Remember, you can listen to the show again on river.radio. Listen again where you'll sign in and you get some great information coming to you. Or you can download the um, the you can download this on on podcast on Apple, Spotify, 